Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening. My name is Hilary Staver, and I'm a master's student studying energy policy and economics at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Our guest in the studio today is Mr. Brian Keene, the president and founder of the nonprofit environmental marketing firm Smart Power. Smart Power's work has been recognized and awarded by a variety of groups, from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to the Service Industry Advertising Awards. Brian, welcome to the studio. Thank and you thanks so for much. being with us. Great to be here. So, back in 2002, uh, what was the unmet need or the market niche that basically inspired you to found Smart Power? And how's that translated into the work that you guys are doing today? Sure. So, if you, th- if you can think back, 2002, um, you know, prior to that, the, any marketing that had been done on clean energy or energy efficiency had always focused on you should buy solar power because it's good for the environment. You should uh, be energy efficient because it's good for the environment. Save the polar bear. And so there's a whole lot of kind of push to use energy efficiency or, or renewable energy simply because it was good for the environment. And that's true. But the need was really there that, in fact, even though it's good for the environment to buy solar power or to be energy efficient, nobody was, nobody is. <laughs> um, and that, in fact, buying something for the environment is not in and of itself a reason for people to, to buy something or do something. So what basically a group of private foundations, so the Pew Charitable Trust and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, kind of the, those guys came together and said, look, somebody has to be out there marketing renewable energy and energy efficiency to regular people, to people who don't care about the environment, to people who don't care about energy issues. Get them to buy it the same way they buy Coca-Cola. Get them to want it the same way they want McDonald's. And so that was really what created Smart Power, was the need for in effect, a nonprofit marketing firm on clean energy and energy efficiency. So could you give us a few examples of how those principles have translated into actual projects on the ground? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we started, uh, you know, our initial project actually right here in Connecticut. Um, and I should say one of our founding uh, funders as well was then the Connecticut Clean Energy Fund, which is today uh, CEFIA, the Clean Energy Finance and Investment Authority. But they, they helped put us together and basically said, look, can you help uh, – can you create a marketing campaign in Connecticut that would get Connecticut recognized as a national leader on renewable energy? And at that time, uh, the utility market had just been deregulated. And so for the first time now, people could start buying clean energy, if you will. People could actually check off a box on their utility bill and say, hey, when you buy energy for me, utility company, just buy renewable energy. And they'll know that the same stuff, come, I mean, I'm getting the same stuff coming to my house, but I'll pay a little bit more extra just so that for me, you're not buying coal, oil, or nuclear power. I want you to buy wind, solar, or hydropower. And so that was uh, called the Connecticut Clean Energy Options Program. People could check that off. And basically, we then created what we call the Clean Energy Communities Program. We went to cities and towns across Connecticut and asked them to get to buy 20% of their energy. I'm sorry, yeah, 20% of their energy from this clean energy option by the year 2010. So we came, we came right here to New Haven, actually, Mayor Stefano. We came to Mayor Stefano in New Haven, and we said, look, could you, w- would New Haven buy 20% of its energy from clean energy? And Mayor Stefano 
thought we were crazy. <laughs> he, said, he said, absolutely not. He said, you don't understand. I don't have cops on the streets. I don't have books in the schools. Last thing, people are not asking me to buy clean energy. And it's going to cost us more. So no, we're not going to do that. And so we said, okay, we totally understand. But how about we put together a campaign that gives kind of the support within the community to do that? And he said, look, if people in the community want to do it, then we'll do it. So we went to work with uh, the faith-based organizations here, the, the churches, synagogues here in New Haven, uh, with Yale University, with uh, really all the environmental groups, Clean Water Action was here, um, really putting together the support for New Haven to buy 20% clean energy by the year 2010. And indeed, Mayor DiStefano then called us and said, let's do a press conference. We're ready to do it. Let's, we're going to buy 20% clean energy by the year 2010. So he passed a resolution in the city council and signed a, a proclamation committing the city of New Haven to buying 20% renewable energy by 2010. This was 2004, I think, that he did it. And so it was a real pioneer. And he was a, and this, New Haven was the first city in Connecticut to do that. And, uh, and then actually we ultimately even said, by the way, um, we all, not only do we want 20% for the whole town, but we'd like to get 100 people within the town to sign up for the clean energy options for their homes. And the Connecticut Clean Energy Fund said, for every 100 people that signed up, we'll give you a 1KW solar array for any town building you want. So DeStefano was like, Let's, we definitely want that, but we're going to sign up 1,000 people. So we want 10KW. And he did. They did it. And so they got solar onto the town, town buildings. And then what happened was because New Haven did it, other communities around New Haven wanted to do it. And then other communities, and it kept mushrooming and you know snowballing, if you will, out from New Haven. Um, today, I think there are over 100 communities in Connecticut that bought 20% renewable energy by 2010, that actually did it, that actually have solar now on town, town buildings because they got a minimum of 100 people to sign up for their clean energy options program. So it was really incredibly successful. And really, it's really just a long way, long way to your answer. But what we've been able to do is these kind of on-the-ground outreach campaigns that get people to really take action on clean energy and energy efficiency. When, when I tell people we're a nonprofit marketing firm on clean energy, they kind of assume, oh, you're, you do TV ads and newspaper ads and radio ads about clean energy. And we have done that stuff, but that we know today is not how one sells clean energy or how one gets people to be energy efficient. The real kind of secret sauce of what we do is really still in that Connecticut Clean Energy Communities campaign. It's on-the-ground outreach, neighbor-to-neighbor, friend-to-friend, peer-to-peer, getting people to actually start taking actions. It's been wonderful to see, too, because having worked with some of the other clean energy programs that that the Connecticut Clean Energy Finance and Investment Authority has implemented since then, we've seen that the, the communities that have participated in the Clean Energy Communities Program have a much stronger baseline now in terms of people being interested in these issues and having a network that they can reach out to for future projects as well. It was exactly right, and you know we call that persistence. What we're seeing is that there's real persistence in these communities, and it's true that if you can if you can get someone to take an energy action, um, and a, even a simple, very simple, easy energy action, you can get them to turn off their computer when they're not using it. They are more likely to take another energy action, and then another one, and another one, and another one. And that's really, we've seen that here in Connecticut, going back to that first campaign all the way up to today, to the solar campaign we're running here, that they're really, you're, we're building off really the, the core group that was created and building and standing on those shoulders and really making it work. It's really, it's very exciting. Is there a particular reason why you've chosen to focus on the town as your core 
unit for programs as opposed to something larger or smaller? Yeah, so, and I'd say it this way, that we focus on community. And um, across the country, people identify community differently. Now, here in New England, we do identify community as towns and cities. Um, and that's kind of the first community that we think we live in, and, and here in New England. Um, but make no mistake, people live in other communities. People live in a, a work community. Yale itself is a community. Um, and by the way, not just for the students here, but for the people who live and work here, or, you know, who work here, this is their community. Um, you can go to almost any major, even small business in the state or actually across the country, and people will very quickly and readily identify with that business where they work as their community. They have friends there. They spend, quite frankly, they probably spend 10 hours a day there. Um, it is all wrapped up in their being. So what we really try to do is actually broadly define community. And in some cases, it's cities and towns. Some cases, it's a business. Some cases, it's a church or a synagogue. Um, other places, it's a member of a, I'm a group of, a, you know, I'm, I'm a member of a group. I'm a member of the Audubon Society. That could be my community. The point about energy efficiency and on-the-ground outreach and renewable energy is to meet them, meet people in the communities where they live. And in some cases, a city and town, it might just be an environmental organization. It might be a, uh, it might be the Rotary Club. You know, it could be a, a church. So, you know, you got to just identify where they are self-identifying themselves. And the point really for, to do that is because, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., and, you know, quite frankly, nobody's going to, listen to me and say, oh, this guy from Washington, D.C. told me to be energy efficient. But they will listen to their friends and neighbors. They will listen to their peers, their peers who are at work and live in that same community, their peers who go to their same club or their same church. Um, they will listen to those peers. And so that's how we work within community, that you're, list you're learning and hearing information from people that you know and trust who live in your very same community. Well, speaking of meeting people, uh, you have, in addition to your work with Smart Power, also a book, Green yeah. is Good, yeah. that came out in 2012 and is also based on these core principles of how we should market clean energy. So who were you trying to reach with that? Who were you trying to reach beyond the people who you've worked with in Smart Power through those programs? And, and why did you feel that you needed to expand this work into book form? Good question. The um, and. Yeah, so the book's called Green is Good, um, published by Lions Press, actually, out of, uh, out of Connecticut. Um, and really what, what we wanted to do was, you know, over the past decade, we've, we've done these incredible campaigns that have really moved the, the market, whether it's in solar, wind, hydropower, geothermal, or, and also energy efficiency. And we've actually done it in, through a very low-tech way. You know, community organizing is not high-tech. It's, very, it's actually very low tech. You can use the gadgets. You can use iPads and iPods and all that and build, build better communications. But at the end of the day, it's people talking to people and giving them information, showing them how to do it. And so what, kind of what came out of that is, is in, what's come out of this past decade is some incredible anecdotes, great stories about things that we've done um, and great characters that we've met and great people. And... Uh, quite frankly, it was a book agent that said, you should just put this in a book because this is this could be very readable. And then everybody else would want to kind of do this. And so basically, yeah, I said, that'd be, that'd be great. Let's write the book. So I wrote a book. Um, and basically, you know, as I say, the book to some extent wrote itself because it was simply our life over the past 10 years at Smart Power. Um, and so if you read it, you'll basically 
uh, read it like a series of anecdotes, like just a series of stories. It's not a preachy book. It's not telling us, you know, you must live this way or that way. It's simply giving examples of how people are actually saving money, making money, and helping their communities profit from clean energy. It does seem like an approach that's well-suited to a medium like that, where someone could basically run a do-it-yourself campaign if they saw these principles at work, like you said, it's low tech to just reach out to people in your community. So it's exactly right. And what we've said in every community we go to, all of the tools to be energy efficient and to buy renewable energy, to be a leader in clean energy, all of the tools are already in that community. And I don't care what community we're talking about, they're already there. The trick is really simply organizing them, bringing them together. I mean, it really is the epitome of community organizing. Community organizing is nothing more than simply making use of all the tools that are already there and pointing them into a common cause, a common mission. And that's what we've been doing with Smart Power. Now, in the first chapter of your book, the title is The Pet Rock Conundrum, which I thought was very interesting because when you think of role models for the clean energy industry, (laughs) uh, that's not the first one that springs to mind, but the way you develop it, it makes it actually very relevant to the story of clean energy. So could you expand a little bit on uh, kind of what that conundrum is and how it relates to smart power? Sure, work? absolutely. The, um, and I probably am dating myself a bit because most, most folks probably at this point may not know what a pet rock is. But uh, back in the 1970s, there was a very creative guy named Gary Dahl who was out at a bar with a bunch of friends of his. And uh, they were having a good time. But people, most of his friends at the table were complaining about how much work it was to take care of their cat or their dog or their parakeet. And people were leaving to go home to take care of the dog. The dog had to get out. And he couldn't. He just thought this was the silliest thing in the world. Why would anybody want something that is so dependent on them that they can't even be out at a bar having a good time? And they were trying to say, no, you don't understand. The dog gives love. The cat just likes to be held, blah, blah, blah. And he just thought there had to be a better way. So basically, on a, as a joke, he, got, he went home and he took a rock out of his backyard and he put it on a little bed of hay and he said, this is my pet. This is my pet rock. And it was a joke. But what happened was that that joke went viral and went viral in the, in the mediums of the 1970s, but it became an overnight sensation. And people around, literally around the world, were buying pet rocks from him by mail order um, and it would come in this little cardboard box with hay. It was a little, and it literally, these were rocks he just got in his backyard that he <laughs> put on hay, and he would send them to you for $15 in $1970. Well, $1970, that's a lot of money. Um, he made the cover of Time Magazine. It was, it was hot. And the real point about the magic of Pet Rocks, to me, and, to, and how it relates to energy, is that he, his genius was that he was selling, he was selling, something to people that they had piles of in their backyard, right? Like he was selling rocks and anybody could go into their backyard and get a rock and say, that's my pet rock. It's exactly what he did. But what he did was he was very creative in his marketing of it. And so the lesson learned is that that he was able to get people to buy rocks we sh- that basically have no value, that could be picked up anywhere. We in the renewable energy industry can be at least as creative in getting people to buy renewable energy. Put it another way, big you know tobacco companies have been very successful in getting people to buy cigarettes. Cigarettes are expensive, they're antisocial, and they're bad for you. But people buy them, and they've been incredibly successful at getting people to buy them. 
we should at least be able to do what they're doing, selling renewable energy, something that is vital to lifestyle, that is healthy for your environment, and quite frankly, is kind of a cool thing to have. And so really what I'm trying to do is say, look, time and time again, good marketing has sold huge products um, and silly products, but marketing can really succeed here. And what we've been missing in the renewable energy and energy efficiency world for so long is good marketing. It has been sold for 30 years because it's good for the environment, and it is good for the environment, but that's not enough of a reason for people to buy something. They need something more. They need it to have a bigger value to them. And so good marketing can cre create that value, and that's really what we're trying to do with Smart Power. Now, one of Smart Power's biggest successes that we haven't touched on yet is the Solarize program yes. that is currently running in Connecticut and Massachusetts which it's a it's an, an incentive program for residential solar PV, and it's been fantastically successful. I mean, I mean the pilot round in Connecticut uh, had all four of the towns that participated more than doubling the total number of residential solar arrays in the city in just 20 weeks. So it's been very successful. Could you tell us a little bit about how Solarize works and what sets it apart from the other marketing approaches to solar that we've sure. seen recently? Sure. And, uh, you know, and you're right, it's been an incredibly successful program. Just to kind of set the stage for it, um, it's really hard to buy solar in this country. It's very hard. You don't walk into CVS and buy solar. And it's usually, there are state policies and there are federal policies. So for the average regular consumer, it's really hard to buy solar. But if you ask people if they want to buy solar, 80% of the people say, I'd, I'd like to buy solar. They just don't know how to. So the Solarize campaign that we created here in, in uh, Connecticut, and we created it with, um, with CEFIA again, with uh, Clean Energy Finance and Investment Authority, is basically a community-based outreach campaign on solar that uses basically the market forces of group purchasing to drive the cost down. So it's really exciting. Basically, the way it works, we uh, will basically put out an RFP, a request for a proposal to cities and towns saying, hey, who wants to become a Solarize community? And certain towns will raise their hands and say, yeah, we want to do this. And, and if, we, if you pick us to be one, we're going to kind of make it a big deal in town. You know, the city council will pass a resolution or we'll have, you know, flyers in city hall about it, that type of stuff. So we'll pick a community. And then we'll do another RFP, another request for proposal for a solar installer. And we know that one of the confusions that happens with solar, we, like, we really like, uh, uh, we like competition in the marketplace. We want people to be able to jockey for best prices, but it also confuses the, the homeowner. They don't know who to call and there's, you know, they don't know who to trust, there's that type of stuff. So we'll put out an RFP to keep competition in the marketplace through the RFP process. We'll say, okay, we want a solar installer for Weathersfield, Connecticut. And we'll get all these proposals in. And then working with the town, we'll select one, one installer for the town for this 20, what we call a 20 week solarized campaign. And now you have the town on board, you have a solar installer on board, and now we kick it off for a 20-week campaign. And what's fascinating about the 20 weeks is that um, we have finally kind of figured out why Joseph A. Bank always has sales. You know, you always, every time you see a TV ad, it's for Joseph A. Banks. You know, they're, come in now, buy three, get eight for free, that type of thing. But it turns out they're always doing ad, or sales because they work. And so... In our industry, we'd never figured that out. We actually did a, and, and Smart Power, you know, to blame as well. We did a campaign in uh, 
in Arizona that was four years long. It's like, wow, no one's going to buy solar over four years. But we made it 20, 20 weeks, and 20 weeks from start to finish, which meant in Wethersfield, Connecticut, you have 20 weeks to buy solar, and it will perhaps never be at a cheaper price. This is the time to buy it. If you ever thought of buying, buy it now. And so what we had then was that, and then over those 20 weeks, Smart Power with local folks on the ground, working with local organizations, going to different events, going to house parties, hosting house parties at, at homes of people who already own solar, um, getting people to actually kick the tires of it, if you will. In effect, what Solarize does is it brings the solar store to your community. As I say, there's no CVS, there's no solar store, but Solarize brings it to your community. And so you're like, oh, and here's the installer. He's the installer for this town for the next 20 weeks. He's going to give me the best price. And by the way, the more people that sign up, the cheaper the price goes. So, and as you said, it's been incredibly successful. What we've seen is consistently we're doubling the number of solar installations in every town over 20 weeks. We're dropping the costs of what they call the soft costs by about 20%. So what you're having now in cost relations with, with solar, the hardware is coming way down because we're getting cheaper hardware. You know, it, it's coming in from Japan and China. That hardware is coming down, but then the soft costs, the marketing costs that the installers have to do, the getting up on the roof, those costs then come down from, from Solarize as well. So those combined really make this an affordable piece. Then we're able to add in financing mechanisms, whether from a bank or from even Cepheus state loans. People are able to actually start financing this the same way you'd finance a car. You know, you don't walk into the car, car showroom and say, I'll take that $30,000 car, here's your cash. You finance it. And so that's why we're able to see some real, some real traction here in Connecticut as well. The financing is really successful. So people are able to get the product they want. Their friends and neighbors are getting it as well. And we're seeing huge uptick. The other thing that's really exciting about SolarEyes, you know, it's always been believed. The belief was, like, well, there's, you know, the low-hanging fruit. There's the regular people that the kind of the standard people we figure would go and buy solar, kind of the left-of-center environmentalists. But with Solarize, we're seeing fully 20% of those people who are buying or signed up for Solarize had never thought about buying solar before. And so what that means, that's a huge aha. That means, wow, we're really breaking through to the next rung. We're actually really making this a consumer product that people want to buy. It's not a political discussion. It's a consumer choice. And it's powerful from a policy standpoint as well, because since a lot of the outreach work in these towns is done by people who are just willing to volunteer their time because they want to lower their own costs for solar and just because they care about the issue, because of that, from what I understand, it's a very cost-efficient program to run as opposed to a direct subsidy that will just give you back a certain percentage rebate if you take your own initiative to buy a solar uh, installation for your own home. Exactly right. No, it's allowing the market forces to work, and it's working at its best. I mean, it really, it's fascinating, and it, it's when the market can work, it really does work. And so too often what we have with solar is kind of this policy argument, this political argument about, you know, oh, we have incentive money, we have, you know, these, these um, you know, different uh, tax credits and that type of stuff, and it becomes very heated. And what Solarize is basically doing is it's, it's not political at all. It's simply saying, hey, if I'm going to buy solar, it's going to just for me, it's going to cost one price. But if me and 10 of my friends buy it, it's going to come way down. And that's just economics. And so it's really exciting how it works. Now, one of the other projects that you're currently working on is a program in Norwich, Connecticut, that instead of trying to encourage people to go solar, is trying to get them to switch from oil to natural gas for home heating. Yeah. 
And it seems like that could be a little trickier because one of the great things about SolarEyes that makes it a little easier to sort of leverage this social capital is that solar is so visible. If I install it on my home, then you know my entire neighborhood can see the moment it's up. But if I switch my heating fuel, then uh, it's a little bit less obvious to people. So how have you been approaching that and getting around that obstacle? Sure. And let me just kind of pull it back a little bit on that, too, which is kind of the, um, you know, if we're going to be serious about combating climate change, we have to do something about the, the home heating oil, particularly in New England. So that is a huge piece of the climate puzzle is can we get people off oil heat? And New England is the leader in oil heat. And I, I grew up just outside of Boston, and we always had that giant, you know, 100-gallon drum of oil back down in the basement. And it smelled, and it was expensive, um, and it was a beast to, to heat the house. I mean, it was incredible to try to heat the house. Natural gas, for all of its problems, and there are huge challenges that natural gas has, particularly kind of in how we get it. Um, but when you burn natural gas, it just burns better than oil as a climate solution, as a short-term climate solution, oil, a gas, gas heat is a, is a real winner. And so what we're excited about is the opportunity to get people in New England as off oil and onto natural gas. The challenge that, say, a utility has about doing that is that in oil to get natural gas, you have to lay pipe down the street and people have to sign up for it. And so the utility, rightly so, is it's, as a business, basically saying, well, we don't really want to put down the pipe unless we know people are going to buy it because it's such an expense. So talking with them and again also with Cephia, we said, look, here's what we should be doing. There's climate interest for us in getting people off oil. But we would also like to talk to these homes about becoming more energy efficient. And natural gas is a piece of that, but then there's other things they can do in the house to be energy efficient. How about we create an on-the-ground outreach campaign in Norwich that basically signs, gets people to switch from oil to natural gas. And it'll be door-to-door. It'll be uh, you know neighbor-to-neighbor, friend-to-friend, peer-to-peer, community-by-community group, getting people to switch. And what's fascinating is that it's the same exact on-the-ground outreach model that we use for our clean energy communities campaign, solarized campaign, all of our efficiency campaigns. And it really works. That people, when they talk to their friends and neighbors who are doing this, then they are more likely to do it. So then to get to your point, which is that solar is much more visible, it's more of a gadget, and isn't that easier to do because you really don't see kind of natural gas coming in. Um, You almost don't need that, though. And and so what you have is, well, if my friend and neighbor is doing it, then I I might as well do it. And then what you also see is with natural gas being so cheap, the cost is is almost a no-brainer. I mean, if, if your neighbor is doing it, if they're going to be laying the pipe anyway, well, of course I'd switch. And then for the visibility piece, what's actually interesting is it's, it's what they don't see. So now they actually can take that giant oil tank out of their basement, oh. and they're actually like, hey, we actually have a basement, and it doesn't smell like oil. How cool is that? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's really kind of exciting how it works. Um, and then it's incumbent upon us and the homeowner then say, like, okay, what else can we do? Can we start actually using our energy better? We believe at Smart Power that the, at the end of the day, what we really need to do is get people just to be energy smart. Using energy today is actually quite complicated. And yet every single one of us is using it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Every single one of us. But it is tough because we don't know 
how we're using it. We're not even aware when we're using it. We're not aware how not to use it. So, you know, to that point, you know, specifically, when I was a kid, the biggest energy drain in the house was the refrigerator. And that at least makes sense. It has to be on. It has to be on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Today, the biggest energy drain in the house is the flat screen TV. And it's the flat screen TV when it's off. The flat screen TV when it's off is using more power, more energy than your refrigerator. That's incredible. And it's real power. I mean, it's actually, it's about $100 a year with your TV and kind of your entertainment center. But $100 a year when you think it's off that you're paying for. Then you add into the fact that most American homes have more flat screen, te- more flat screen TVs than children. And you got real money going out the door. And really what we're trying to say is that is information that a lot of people don't know. It's like, you got to be kidding me. I thought I turned my TV off. When I left home, I did not leave Morning Joe on. But in fact, I might as well have because the TV is still on, still drawing power. So if we can start educating people, showing them how to save energy, then they start becoming energy smart and they start using their energy more responsibly. And that's what we're seeing in Norwich as well. So they're changing from oil to gas. And in the process, they're saying, what else can I do? And by the way, we're seeing that in all the solarized towns too. When people get solar... You better believe they do not want that solar to be used to power their TV to be off, right? They want it for the big things. They want it, They want to keep the refrigerator better be on with my solar. You know, the light, the house will be well lit because the solar is working. They don't want to waste it. And that's so exciting because it's like, wow, so they got solar. Now they're becoming a real energy steward. They're actually really being smart about how their energy is being used. So the campaigns are targeted around particular technologies, but really it's a bigger issue about education and how we think about energy use and how we approach it as a society. Yeah, well, and I, you know, it's, it's um, community organizing throughout history has changed society. And it really has. I mean, it changed the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement started in churches. And that's quite frankly where we get most of our uptick is in churches on clean energy and energy efficiency. That people talking to people showing them that things are normal, that this is normal. Now that I have solar power, their world hasn't ended. My, my lights still go on. The heat still works. The air conditioning still works. I'm living large. I got solar. Then people are like, well, I want to do that too. I thought solar was just deprivation. I thought if I had solar, I'd always had to wear a sweater around the house. It's like, no, you can still have all the creature comforts. You just have a better source of energy. Well, are there any other barriers to the development of the clean energy industry that smart power is thinking about tackling in the future? Or do you have any advice for opportunities if someone is looking for a way to contribute to this issue? Yeah, so I, good, good, good question. Because I would say, um, uh, and especially there are students listening to this, that the um, make no mistake that the jobs in this country, there, there are three areas that you want to go into for a job in this country. Number one is energy, number two is energy, number three is energy. It's energy, (laughs) energy, energy. And it just is true. All of us are using so much energy all the time. The challenge we have is actually creating enough energy for us to use, and then ultimately using it responsibly. But so if you're you know, graduating from school, you should start thinking about the energy industry on almost any part of it is just going, is booming and will continue to boom. Energy is really, it's the jobs created. Second, second is going to be, by the way, taking care of our elderly. So think about that because that picture is clear. It's like, oh, you know the baby boomers are, are aging. If you want to go into an industry to take care of people, that's where the money's going to be. 
But number one to that is going to be energy. So that's something to keep in mind. But the other piece that we really need to understand, and this is, it's the, it's the constant struggle I think we have with renewable energy and energy efficiency, is that this is not a political debate. It is a consumer choice, okay? The president of Coca-Cola really doesn't care who the president of the United States is. They're gonna sell Coca-Cola no matter if Democrat or Republican gets elected. And that's how the renewable energy field should be as well. We don't really care who's gonna be president. We're gonna sell renewable energy whether it's a Republican or Democrat. We shouldn't care. And for too long, it's been caught up in this politics and that's really just thrown it to the side and actually marginalized it, and perhaps intentionally, but it has marginalized our issues and our industry. And we gotta bust out of that and understand that people wanna buy clean energy, they wanna be energy efficient, for any number of reasons that they want to do it. The same way they want to buy a Lexus as opposed to a Hyundai. They want to buy cool products. They want to be cutting edge. They want to be seen in their neighborhood. So let's let them do that. So that's really kind of the last bit. And then I, if, uh, if I could just put in one quick plug, which is that if you're looking for a book to read, it's called Green is Good, and it's a really good one. Well, thank you very much, Brian, for being with us today. And thank you all for listening. So that's all for today. Hey, thanks, Hillary. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.